Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged, shaped, and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mor, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double read accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. have a new family member. She is a beautiful 50 pound dog named Luna. And I love her so much. <laughs> We've been four days and I love her so much. Yay. Yay. So I've officially entered the world of dog people. Yes. And it's been a long time coming. And I feel like for a substantial part of the consideration process, I was the only person on team get a dog with you there were very few people on team get a dog and very a lot of people on team don't get a dog we won (laughs) (laughs) on team don't get a dog was my wife (laughs) and your parents (laughs) and my parents and my brothers (laughs) but it's okay but podcast co-host wins out every time (laughs) look i needed the dog the dog needed me it was kismet Oh, and the cat, I think, is also on team don't get a dog. Yeah, the cat was definitely on team don't get a dog. But we are acclimating them extremely slowly. So they have not met nose to nose yet. There is currently all interactions are monitored and baby gated. So (laughs) TBD on the cat. (laughs) I mean, I'm definitely keeping the cat, but TBD on whether or not they're going to be best friends like in my wildest dreams. <laughs> and in the meantime, it's back to school. Are you excited to be back? You just had a lot going on. Oh, yes. The faculty did a like back to school welcome concert, essentially, that was Dead Elvis with Soldier's Tale. And it went really, really well. Let me tell you, if you're looking at, if you're going to play Dead Elvis and you're looking at where to purchase your costume and your wig regarding Amazon, you get what you pay for. And I will <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> if you cut corners, you're going to put a lot of work into uh, making it work. So <laughs> keep that in mind. <laughs> so we're not talking about Elvis today. We are talking about back to school advice for college or grad school. And we got so many amazing responses from our listening community. 
Katerina Wallace-Bristol said, seek to expand your artistic and academic world beyond the music building. Campuses have so much to offer all students for enrichment, growth, and development. And I really, really love that because I feel that we are in an extremely uh, transitory time right now where we're training students for careers and jobs that don't exist yet. You know, so I think it's really, really helpful to figure out who you are outside of music. We had several people talk about the importance of who you surround yourself with. Annie says, run with the high achieving go-getter crowd, not by yourself, especially if you're lonely. It takes a supportive community of peers in addition to excellent instruction to be successful. I always tell my students, show me your friends. I'll show you your future. Mm -hmm. I found my tribe when I found people who were encouraging one another to do your best and try hard and who will help pull you up in your moments of weakness or self-doubt. Really, I agree with that. Think about who you surround yourself with. Mm -hmm. Greg said, be kind to yourself and treat your body right. Ask for help a lot. Play long tones and scales every day. Check, 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 check. I 100% agree with all of that. And I love that he said, ask for help because we are not alone. There is a whole community out here, whether online or in person, that can help with whatever you're going through. And I guarantee if you're going through something, you are not the only one. Well, and that kind of relates to Krista's comment that says, go to office hours. Your professors aren't as scary as you might imagine them to be. And they really want to help you. Yeah. That's why we're doing it. Yeah, definitely. Demystifying and getting to know your professors that can seem a little scary, but I completely agree. We also can't help or solve problems that we don't know about. So don't feel hesitant to put things on your teacher's radar and lean on your resources. That's why we got into this business. No one becomes a teacher because they hate working with students. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe some sadists do, but... (laughs) Let's go most. (laughs) Elizabeth Ball Crawford said, do the work. Four years will go by fast, faster than you realize. Take every opportunity. Don't overthink risks. Learn from everybody in every situation. Don't close any doors. Be kind to everyone. Yeah. That sounds good. Dylan says, learn how to say no without feeling guilty. So kind of a nice counterbalance to take risks, go for it. But when your body and heart are telling you, I need to scale this back, don't be afraid to do that because we've talked about burnout a lot on this podcast as well. So protecting your heart, protect your heart, protect your art. I'm going to copyright that. Oh my God, I love that. <laughs> Trademark. Don't even think about it. Copyright. Property of Double Reed Dish, LLC. <laughs> That's so generous of you to say double redish and not just Jackie Wilson. Well, <laughs> Christy Selkeen and Maria Tavani both said go to summer music festivals. They are so important. They are. I mean, Maria says they seem expensive, but it'll be worth the money to play a ton of rep and meet a ton of musicians from all over that you will then have as connections later. Yes. It's so important if you have the ability to go to a summer music festival, no matter how short or how long, you should totally do it. 
Yeah, that's definitely something I wish I had done more of. I completely agree with that. Um, I loved this advice from Christina, <laughs> who says, no one cares what chair you got in Allstate Band. <laughs> Christina, yes. Christina, I love the level of snarcasm. You just trademarked snarcasm. I definitely did Is not come up with that. I think it's a thing. Oh. I didn't come up with that. Mary Parker said, start a practice and read journal. Oh, my God. That was what she said. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and Oh, my God. I agree. <laughs> Ooh, I love this. Jenny says, keep organized, be disciplined, but remember to take a break and have fun without consequences that run into your responsibilities. And this is essentially going back to this idea of balance, but I love that she brings discipline and organization into it mm -hmm. uh, because part of college is that you're self-sufficient now and mom and dad are not there to make sure to remind you you have this thing today and so you have to be on top of stuff and not only be looking at today but what's coming up this week this month later this semester um and even self-care things like oh man tomorrow is such a busy day i need to remember to pack a sandwich Yes. Uh, and thinking about that type of stuff. And so organization can play such a key part in a successful, sustainable time in college. So I love that she brought organization into it. Uh, Heidi says, go out into the community with your own ensemble and start performing and making your music career real while you're still studying. And actually, that's amazing advice. And I would expand on that. If you want to go into higher education and you're in grad school right now, see if you can teach a music appreciation class somewhere or start teaching at a small college, you know, whatever applied instrument, like get yourself out there and get some teaching experience if that's what you really want to do. So has this made you think of anything you would especially say to double read players starting their degree? I've already said it a little bit, but I'll expand on it. It can be so devastating to have a tiny definition of success when the career is as specific as it is. So pursue what you love, music, oboe, bassoon, to as much as you possibly can make yourself the best musician that you possibly can. And also who you, who are you outside of that? What do you like to do outside of that? That is not so narrowly de defined. And in, in the end, it's about creating a life that you will enjoy as a whole person. What's your advice, Jackie? Mm, I think one thing that we haven't necessarily touched on, especially for the grad students, but for the for the undergrads as well, it can sometimes be a little bit of a transition to study with a new applied teacher. There's sometimes of like, oh, you're telling me to do this that way. My old teacher didn't tell me to do it this way. Mm -hmm. My old teacher taught me to make reads like this. And um, I would encourage you that with a new teacher to be completely open to their processes, to their instruction, to not question it, to not bring in previous instruction as a way to deflect what they're trying to tell you to do. Completely open yourself up to the process. And then at the end of the road, you know, you take what you can use from teacher A, what really resonated from teacher B and so on, plus your own thoughts and feelings. And that's how you come up with your own 
musician, your own pedagogy, your own perspective. Uh, but if you limit yourself, you're not going to be able to reap everything from that teacher that you can. And that's why you're there in the first place. So it can sometimes be hard, you know, especially if you, we all love our teachers, hopefully. And if it's like, no, this person I love told me to do it this other way, but try to unpack that baggage and leave it at home and just completely immerse yourself in this new environment and this new process. And have fun. Enjoy the school year. Enjoy your life. Oh yeah. Have fun. Eat cheese. Get a dog. So I want to talk to you guys about Singin' Dog Double Reads. Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products and you'll be glad you did. That's Singin' Dog Double Reads. Everyone knows that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality and service in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall is like a farmer's market filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. Who knows? One day they may be your reeds for sale. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife sharpening book, cutting block, and reed tool roll. Visit them at www.gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're more than just reed knives. Welcome to the podcast, Steve Baki, professor of bassoon and chamber music at the University of Oregon. Thanks for appearing on Double Read Dish. Thank you so much. I'm excited to dish. <laughs> How did you start playing the bassoon? Well, I I grew up in Rhode Island and um, I went to public schools. And where where I grew up, we started instrumental music in grade five. But wisely, they didn't offer the so-called tricky instruments. So no double reeds, no tuba, no horn. Um, I think that made a lot of sense. They wanted to get people going on something. And then if you had the initiative or the craziness, then they would let you move on to a different instrument. So I had already played piano and a few other things, recorder, um, even a little bit of mandolin prior to that. But I I did start on saxophone. And um, it didn't take long. I think it was about six months into grade five when my band directors finally relented to my pestering that they let me try the bassoon. So I was quite young. I was 10 and a half wow. when I took, took a bassoon home and um, it was a Friday. I actually remember the date, which is sad or random. Um, and I brought it to school on a Monday and everybody was freaking out. And uh, the director said, why don't you play something for them? And I played <laughs> C major scale going down to low C. And when I got to the low C, the room erupted. And I was like, that's all I have to do to get notoriety exactly <laughs> i'm in so yeah that was pretty much it but I, I was a doubler with um single reads pretty well through high school 
kind of a reed five bass clarinet barry sax those sorts of things um so the notion of playing multiple instruments has always seemed normal to me and that's continued pretty much through my career talk us through your educational journey and your journey toward professorship so like i said i started quite young um and it was maybe a year and a half before i had systematic lessons with you know a real bassoonist but i also spent five summers away at a wonderful music camp in maine where i had a, a different teacher and that was bob reinert who was a petsy student from eastman um perhaps his most famous student was chris weat hmm. and so he was in a way a generation past so kind of a grand teacher mm-hmm. But I studied with him for five summers. And then uh, my first teacher from home, um, her name's Rebecca Eldridge. She's a delightful teacher, wonderful reed maker. She also teaches piano and plays um, in the Vermont Symphony. So I had several teachers in those, those early years. And um, thank you to all of them because they were really patient. <laughs> I don't think I, I was particularly easy. And I did the kind of usual things, youth orchestras, um, both in Rhode Island and in Boston. Um, I studied with Matt Ruggiero, who I know is one of Jackie's teachers, mm-hmm. um, for a couple of years in high school and at Tanglewood in the high school program. Undergrad, I went to Eastman. This is in the, the late 80s. So I studied with Van Hoosen my whole time there. And um, then I went to Yale. I started my master's at Yale with Steve Maxim. But I needed a break from school at that point. So I actually, I took a leave of absence and never went back. Wow. (laughs) I I know. I joke that um, I'm a proud Yale dropout. Um, (laughs) And it was was the days before it was free. So that was was one factor in taking a leave. But um, I took a year off and then transferred to the Hart School. Another, I know that's, um, Galit, you went there, right? I did for my undergrad. Yeah. So I went there just for one year. I barely remember it, but um, <laughs> that's, they considered me a transfer master's student and I finished in a year. Great. And then um, I did my doctorate at Louisiana State with Bill Ludwig. And I'm, I was very fortunate that at the point that I was ABD, I got a job at um, Wichita State, which is a, one of those package jobs. You teach at the university, play in the quintet. Mm-hmm and play principal in, um, in the orchestra. So I did that for four years. And then I came to Oregon in 2000. So I'm coming up on 20 years here. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, when you said, uh, you, you say you're a Yale dropout, all I can think is that Grease song, Beauty School Dropout. Yes. But Ivy League Dropout. <laughs> Ivy League Dropout. <laughs> yep, that's me. <laughs> So you're obviously a fantastic player. What drew you to higher ed as your main career path? Mm-hmm. It's a really fine question. And um, I think about this a lot when I'm talking, particularly with grad students about where they want to go and what they want to do. I thought forever, like from honestly, when I was 11 years old, I knew I wanted to be a musician. Um, so super nerd. And I remember the first, they were probably, you know, uh, junior high sort of orchestral arrangements that I got to play. And I thought there's nothing more fun than this. And until pretty much the end of my time at Eastman as an undergrad, I was 
certain that I was going to do the full-time orchestral path, but I don't remember if there was some epiphany that happened or I just was like, wow, I need to do more school. I need, I need to work with more fantastic teachers and I'm not done with this yet. So, um, even going to grad school, heading off to Yale, that was a bit of a hasty decision. I threw a, um, yes, it was a cassette at the time in the mail to Maxim. I was like, I think I better go to grad school. (laughs) I don't know what else to do. I had actually been playing a little bit with new world symphony, um, at that time. And there were still original members in the group, but they didn't have an established protocol like they do now with substitutes and um, even the the time limit that they have for membership in the orchestra. So what I remember at the time is that Michael Tilson Thomas, he wasn't going to, you know, throw people out. And so I think some of those original players maybe had more than three years. Anyway, there was, there really wasn't anywhere for me to go, even though I was possibly on that path. So that was my decision. And I, I don't regret it in the least because um, I'm a school nerd. I always have been. And this, this was the right decision. And what's been really interesting is that I've always had orchestra jobs. And um, I feel like part of what I've been able to do is really dispel the myth that if you teach, you do that because you're not such a great player or you didn't have success with orchestral auditions. Um, I mean, I've been doing more than 70 performances a year for at least the last 20 years, maybe longer. So yes, I, I chose academia because it was the right fit for me. And I do love teaching. I love that challenge, but I feel like I really want to try to do as many things as possible in this very narrow world of bassooning the end. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to go back a little bit and ask you about when you were an Ivy league dropout and (laughs) Burnout is something that I have a lot of familiarity with, and I'm sure many of our listeners have experienced in the past or are currently experiencing. Sure. Could you describe your journey out of burnout? Because when you're in it, it feels never ending. So how did you get yourself out of it? It's interesting. Again, it's been a long time, so I'm reflecting back quite a while, but I had just finished, you know, a pretty intense, intensive time as an undergrad at Eastman where I, I did work really hard. And that summer after I, I graduated, the, the Eastman Wind Ensemble did a tour of Japan and a, a live recording there. And then I went right to um, one of the American Soviet Youth Orchestra tours. And this one was sort of infamous. It was wonderful, but it was also infamous because we went to something like 12 countries and it was eight or nine weeks long and everybody was just kind of destroyed by the end of that. Um, Many, many people got sick on the tour. And I remember we finished in Philadelphia and it was maybe a week or two before school was going to start Mm -hmm. at Yale. And so really I didn't have any downtime that summer. And I think that's why I, I needed a break after a year. And so, um, you know, at the time, it seemed like a really scary decision. Like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? I remember even Maxim said, you know, you have to, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you have to find solace in your art. And I think he was genuinely concerned that um, I might not come back to what I was doing. And that was never my intent. I just, I needed to hit the pause button. And um, that amount of time was 
ideal because when I chose to come back to school, which was only a year later, I had all the batteries recharged and I was ready. And I knew shortly after that, that I was going to commit to not just finishing my master's, but doing a doctorate and doing the whole thing. So for me, it was the right amount of time. And I was still freelancing and teaching Mm -hmm. some private lessons, but I had a day job. The perspective was great. And the time off, mental time off was, I guess, just the amount that I needed. So you were still practicing during your year off? Yes. In some ways, I was practicing with more focus because practice when you're out of school, I feel like is, is different. And we, we know that well. I mean, when, when you're working full-time, practice time is precious and you have to be very efficient and focused. And mm-hmm. it's maybe different than I'm going to be working on the top 20 excerpts every single day. That's not, it's not reality. It might be one of those if you're playing you know, Figaro that week or something, yeah, you're going to dust it off, but you're not, you don't have the luxury of many, many hours per day toward that goal. So yeah, I was practicing. I was um, teaching some private students. Um, I was still living in Connecticut and there's plenty of freelancing there. At least there was at the time. So that was good, but um, I'm, I'm fortunate that it was enough time off to, as I said, recharge and keep me going. In fact, I've, I haven't had a break since then. I'm, I'm about to take, <laughs> I'm, I'm just now taking my first sabbatical in 24 years. Wow. Yeah. So that was a good recharge. What does your focused practicing look like? Um, for me, focused practicing is, I'd say project dependent. You know, it's, I, I, I'm in my studio right now and I look over at where I have a music stand that's got kind of my work in progress, whether it's orchestral, chamber, solo, something else. Um, those things are piled up and I usually have little post-its with the dates on them when I have mm-hmm. to have that material ready. So it's, it's focused on whatever's coming up next. I do kind of operate short-term, medium-term, long-term. So there may be things on that music stand that are, that are several months off or even longer but sometimes a visual practice, you know, practicing away from the instrument or just marking things in a part and then I can let it sit for a while. Um, that seems to work pretty well for me. I, I don't like cramming. It's not, it's not my favorite thing to do. But focus practice for me is probably a short warm-up that's hopefully sensible. Um, I try to divide what I do with reads. I'm not a big read nerd. Maybe we'll talk about that later, but um, I try to y- use some reads for warmups, some for technical practice, and then some for repertoire. It took me a much longer time than many to learn that you can't play on your best read all the time. <laughs> that was... Um, you can't? Uh, no, you can't. I mean, you can, <laughs> but yeah, good luck. Um <laughs> I, I was not diligent with that through through my entire time at Eastman. It took well into grad school until I, I became more methodical with reads. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried to do that now because it's, it's a survival tactic. You really need to. Um, but I don't spend an enormous time practicing. I enjoy the work, but again, the time is relatively precious. So when I'm doing it, I have to um, feel like I'm accomplishing 
small goals as opposed to like, I'm going to learn this entire piece in one sitting. Mm -hmm. Um, that again, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. And I, I tried not to put pressure on myself to accomplish all the things at once. I do probably too many things. (laughs) Um, but with practice, with learning material that's on that stand, again, I feel like if I allow myself to let that preparation happen in many different stages, many different kinds of practice, that works out well. I, I do spend what I call practice time away from the instrument. I, mm-hmm. I can get a lot done. I know that sounds funny. <laughs> no, I think it's fantastic. I've been doing it myself <laughs> lately, yeah. listening and, you know, marking and, um, air fingering and mental totally. practice. Yeah. Yeah. It's a secret. Now everyone knows about that secret. Oh, <laughs> so you have a career where you get to do literally everything. You do new music, you do Baroque music, you teach, you play in orchestras, you solo, you record. Mm-hmm. And I'm on all the committees. And you're on all of the committees because you're a full professor. (laughs) Yes. So, okay, I guess my first question is, do you still find it stressful and challenging to bounce between all of those different modes? In a way, hmm, I hesitate to say stressful because, again, if I'm feeling that pressure to accomplish whatever it is, a playing need, a teaching thing, coaching, um, a committee assignment, something like that. I just have to step back one or two paces and I get the perspective that it's like, first of all, I gave up on perfect a long time ago. I still strive for it, but if perfect doesn't happen, that's okay because look, we're human and there may be people that can achieve perfect all the time, but more power to them. Um, so that that's a bit of a release valve that allows me to still aim pretty high with my standards. But I I know intellectually that stress is not productive. It doesn't help me out. It's amazing that you're saying this because Jackie and I literally just had a conversation say, saying the words that are coming out of your mouth. <laughs> and it's it's been an epiphany lately that you don't have to be perfect to still be great. And you are a great player. And the fact that you don't obsess over perfection, that doesn't mean you're lowering your standards. It just means you're giving yourself the freedom to be a human being, right? Yeah. I, I mean, like I said, I would love to be better still. Um, it's an interesting thing. I don't know if my playing is at the highest level that it's ever been. Um, but I also don't, really think about things that way. I don't obsess about those kinds of comparisons. Um, Even with myself, let alone with others, there are zillions of fantastic double read performers and teachers. And for that, I'm grateful because it, it gives all of us inspiration, but each of us only has our own path. And again, even in this, this double read world that the work opportunities are relatively narrow we can find our own uniqueness by focusing on the path that we're, we're following. So yeah, that, that gives me that perspective that says I still want to strive for the the highest that I can. And I know exactly what my challenges are, which is another helpful element to this, but 
I don't beat myself up about these things. And part of it is most listeners aren't listening that way. I, I tell my mm-hmm. students that only if you're in a room full of bassoonists who have their, their sort of, you know, those little golf scorecards, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. I, I guess you got a hole in one on that one, you know, I, and I don't really think that that many of our colleagues are doing that. You know, if you hear someone play a piece that everyone has played and you've heard it a million times, what we're listening to is the individual interpretation, um, the individual presentation, hopefully not, oh, well, that doesn't sound like so-and-so's recording or so-and-so's mm-hmm. articulation, because who cares, honestly? So if you're not thinking about being perfect when you're performing, what are you thinking about? I'm mostly, this sounds really nerdy, but I'm mostly thinking about how can I best honor what's on the stand? I'm not a composer. And so whatever music is on the stand, I have to, you know, in a way, thank the composer for that because otherwise I'm improvising and I do some of that, but not, (laughs) not on a, on a basis that we're accustomed to. I'm not trained in doing that. Uh So I have to draw on my experience and education and all of that to do the best that I can with the style, with the composer, you know, the, the material that they've given us, whether it's a, a famous composer from the past or someone living who's in the room, you know, hoping that their premiere goes well. My duty is to do the best that I can interpreting what's on the page. How does live performance inform your recording in the studio and vice versa? How does one influence the other for you? It's a great question. I feel like in live performance, again, I'm, I'm, I'm quite an optimist, so I'm, I'm couching it in that frame of mind, that we're, we're the conduit, again, for that music on the stand to the listener. There's, there's that connection with whomever's there, and it doesn't matter if there are 5,000 people in the audience or 10. And mm-hmm. I've had both of those experiences. <laughs> <laughs> I did a recital once. Um, I won't say where, it doesn't matter. But um, yeah, there were 10 people there. It's like, it was a guest recital and that's fine. And then the other night I, I was playing an outdoor concert here in Eugene with the symphony and there were easily 5,000 in the audience. Um, I think when you play and you know that there's someone listening, the tendencies that we, we play a little bit differently than mm-hmm. when we're by ourselves or, you know, you're at home playing for your plants and your pets. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I, I think if, if we can bring a little of that into the recording situation, it sounds a little more lively. It sounds a little more engaged and it's coincidental. I'm, I'm in final edits of a really huge recording project. It's all of the Alec Wilder octets for winds and percussion. Uh, sorry. Wow. Winds and rhythm section. And there are 31 of these. They're all about three or four minutes long. Um, but this will be the first recording of all of them, including several that have never been recorded. And so I'm, I've listened to final edits and it's, we're in those, it's getting ready to become a, a real thing. But you can hear when a recording sounds like it really matters to, to the performers. And I feel like that's, that's a level that we can achieve when it's a live performance. Not necessarily all the time when it's recording, because we feel like, again, it has to be perfect right now, where we know with recordings, the technology is stunning and it's brilliant what can be done in order to make things sound perfect. Do you find that that technology is doing damage to 
live performance or do you feel that it's just necessary in order to get the composer's um, ideas across in an accurate manner? I feel like it's more of the latter. Um, I, I, I don't get dark about the, the recording magic or the, the, uh, the studio magic that can go on. I'm mostly interested in recording and putting out things that I think are worth others hearing. I don't see myself recording the Mozart concerto and it's not because I don't like the piece. It's just been done many, many times extremely well. And I don't feel like I have something to bring to it. That said, I feel like there's a lot of repertoire that should be better known. And thinking about a live performance versus recording, yeah, that it raises the level to which we're expected to perform because some concert goers are hoping for and expecting a perfect performance or one that sounds like, you know, their favorite recording of whatever piece. But again, it's the it's the experience of, of that live performance, watching and hearing these these performers doing the thing right there at that moment, I think has a, a, a kind of vibrancy that you don't always get in a recording, even though you can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's possible, but I think it's a very different thing to, to witness a live performance. You've also recorded solos as well as, um, as part of an ensemble. Have those experiences been different and have you been able to glean different insights from the varying experiences of, of recording? Actually, I've only recorded one solo piece that Jackie got to hear a couple movements of at the Meg Quigley symposium this past January. Um, was that different? Yes. It also was a recording that I I did when I was a doctoral student. So relatively speaking, I was young. I think it was the first time that I really felt both the pressure of getting it right and also the sort of release valve of, oh, we're in the studio and there's a way to do this with multiple takes and we can stitch things together and make it sound like it's perfect. So most of the recording that I've done has been small ensemble or large ensemble, mm-hmm. um, chamber music, mostly orchestral um, and some wind ensemble things. But yes and no. I mean, I think the, once you do a recording, you know some of the protocol that goes into it, some of the things like it is totally fine to completely biff something and know that you can, you get another chance. Um, the clock is running. And so, yeah, you're, Time is money in that situation. But to get beyond the, the notion that it has to be perfect the first time, I think, is, is extremely liberating. Switching gears a little bit, I'd love to hear about your journey into contemporary music, new music, and what's in it for you in terms of exploring that literature. Sure. I feel like I started keeping track of the contemporary music that I had performed in during my undergrad time and I I feel like it was because of the application for Tanglewood Music Center. It was always the case that they they were kind of looking for someone who had a decent amount of contemporary music experience because of I think they do a week of that each summer. And um though I didn't get in, it prompted me to keep track of that and I realized through that process that I had played a lot of new music and this may have just been you know I was assigned to play these pieces 
during my undergrad. Um, maybe I had done a few in, in youth orchestra settings, but I'm a list maker and it it's maybe a bit of OCD, but keeping track of those things became something very, very easy to do. And I became to, to really like the process of working with a composer, getting to know them a bit, hearing their perspective, you know, talking about notation, what, what they intend by the things that they notate, you know, getting that immediate feedback. We can't do that with so many composers who are regularly performed, but not living. We, we make our best guess based on scholarship and experience and um, what we've learned from others. But when a composer is there, they can tell you exactly what they want. And um, again, I, I feel a duty to promote music of living composers. So these things kind of went hand in hand. And it's, it's not the only thing that I do, but it has been sort of a, a facet of my career that, that people may think of like, oh yeah, Vaki plays a lot of new music. You also play a lot of old music. I do. Yes. I do all the things. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk more about the intersection of the two, the very new with the very old? Because in my experience, I found that people who really love playing brand new music also really love playing Baroque music. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? And is that something that you've noticed as well? I have noticed that, and it's certainly not everyone who does one or the other is equally enchanted by both. I wonder, I mean, this is off the cuff, but I wonder if it's a related point of view, because with a composer who's right there with you, that maybe you're working on a premiere and they're giving you notes, that's, it's a form of scholarship that performers of, as I call it, ye old music, they, we spend time trying to figure out what exactly did the composer mean at that time? How can I place into context this piece on this crazy instrument with no keys and these goofy reeds? So I wonder if, if there's a sort of a parallel there where you can investigate through scholars, again, scholarship, recordings, learning from others, um, listening to other pieces by a composer from the way back, where that has a relationship with getting to know a composer who's right there with you and hearing what they intend with a piece. It may be just a living version of something that is non-living. I know that sounds very simplistic, but I wonder if that's that's what a lot of these performers find intriguing about doing both. And what have you discovered playing Baroque music on a Baroque bassoon and classical music on a classical bassoon? It's roll hard. <laughs> <laughs> No, I I do love it, and it's been a very interesting part of what I do because I'm I'm not a specialist on historical music, though I have done plenty of Baroque, classical, um, Dulcian, even stuff with rackets and things like that. Again, going back to how how I grew up as a musician, it never occurred to me that you should only play one instrument. Mm. That was, first of all, no one ever said no to me, for which I'm thankful. They're like, oh, great, you brought home yet another thing. My bassoon teachers, my directors in school, they were like, great, have take take home whatever you want, try them out. Um, so that idea kind of stuck with me. And yeah, I did focus my time in school on bassoon and contra, modern bassoon and contra, but I started doing the old stuff and I'm... I'm essentially self-taught with those things. Um, I've participated in some summer courses for historical music, but never with a bassoonist. Um, I would go to oboe classes or cello classes, recorder 
classes and you learn about style and you learn about um, some of the tenets that, that work across all of whatever the instruments or if you're a singer, you, if you pay attention to all of these people, you, it's kind of like free classes. But for me, I play historical instruments a few times a year, which means I have to learn how to ride the bicycle again each time. <laughs> you know, it, is, yeah. it is coming back to it. The reeds are different, of course. The, the resistance is different. Pitch is super tricky. I don't feel like I forget fingerings per se, but it does take me several weeks to kind of get back into it and feel like, okay, I'm ready to show up. Um, but then when I do, I, I often have the experience, and this is with pretty much every facet in what I do, if I'm playing principal or second, third, contra, um, any of the other kooky instruments that I play, which maybe we'll talk about, or Baroque or classical, I, once I get in there, I feel like this is the most fun. You know, I really feel like I belong. But with the historical instruments, it takes me a little longer to get to that point. Switching gears again, I'd love to ask you so many questions about your teaching at the University of Oregon, but the one that I think is the most important is what do you value the most in your teaching? I would love to know, um, we all have value systems and, you know, if you only leave my instruction understanding this one thing, what would that one thing be for you? Awesome question. I feel like the most important thing for me in my time here at Oregon and also in my previous job in Kansas, my job is to do the, the most that I can to help each student toward their own goals. I really don't have an interest in creating carbon copies of what I do or what, what others do. And I respect that. You know, like I said, there are so many fantastic teachers and players, but I feel like the most important thing that I can do is, in a way, walk with each student from point A to point B. And their point A for each student is different, of course, but their point B is also different. I don't feel like I need to make everyone an orchestral player or make everyone a soloist or make everyone a quintet player. It's really helping them to become better adults. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that sounds super nerdy, but... Um, Ultimately, I think that's what we're doing. And I, I have an enormous amount of respect for institutions, teachers who are creating, you know, maybe more methodical models of what they do with their students. I think that's fantastic. Um, but for me, at this institution, in this location, and I feel like for the range of things that I can offer and that my students are interested in it's about them that's beautiful do you have any favorite memories you would like to share with the listeners of um you know delightful things that have happened to you on stage <laughs> <laughs> i think i heard delightful in floating quotation marks right well, that's the second question I have after that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's go with literal delights and then we'll go for quotation delights. Okay. I mean, <laughs> it's, I, I hope this doesn't speak to my memory failing, but I, yeah, I have had many, many exhilarating performances where, you know, my contribution in whatever kind of group it is and everybody else in the group, the, if there's a conductor, if there's an audience, chorus, whatever, 
where things have just been stunning and you feel like, you know, the nerdy goosebumps, like, I can't believe we just did this thing and it was, it went beautifully and the audience loved it. There have been many of those situations. And I, I feel like if I were to try to single out a few of them, it wouldn't be fair. Plus I can't remember things like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but again, as an optimist, I say I'm still super excited to perform. I'm mostly interested in repertoire that I've not performed before. So that's been an interesting change maybe in the last eight or 10 years. There's still favorites that I'm always happy to play, but yeah, there have been many exhilarating performances, whether it's a group that I've gotten to play with, um, a conductor, a a certain hall, a a chamber situation that just everything's super tight and people are having fun and paying attention. It's still... It still captures some of that excitement that I had when I was 11 years old. I love that. Okay, so do you have any embarrassing things that have happened to you on the stage that you would be okay to share? I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> yes. I I can remember, again, growing up as a doubler, I can remember one situation that it wasn't as embarrassing because the stakes weren't so high, but it, in my my hometown, I was playing with um, a community band, and I was playing multiple instruments. I don't know, tenor. It might have been tenor and alto and bassoon. And it was a concert, and I got there. Of course, I was being driven. I wasn't old enough to drive. So I got there and hauled all the instruments in and got set up and realized that my bassoon reeds were sitting at home. Oops. So... Yeah. And, you know, they were diligent. I had soaked. I was like, oh, I'm going to soak them before I go to the show. I don't know why, but I left them in my room. (laughs) I know. So, yeah, that was awesome. I probably figured something out, played bassoon parts on the tenor sax or something like that. Um, But again, the stakes weren't super high. It wasn't like, you know, I was showing up to play Red Spring Principal or something like that. I I would say that was a a good learning experience. So that happened when I was quite young. And so I double, triple, quadruple check most of the time. (laughs) And, you know, it's, it's something we have to do because we have a lot of gear and we have things and we leave things in places. So that was, that was a good one. Um, I do remember in high school playing check five in um, my youth orchestra in Boston. And, um, in the third boom at the waltz, um, there, there are slurs, syncopated slurs in the, in the bassoon, the first bassoon part in these solos that some of them are not particularly favorable slurs. And, um, on the first, the first statement of this solo, one, gosh, I hope it was only one, one of these slurs didn't come out. And so that I thought, Oh, I'll just play it the same way the second time because (laughs) then I'll be consistent. I know. Right. I was thinking I was thinking about I'm I'm a consistent reliable performer I'll do that instead of thinking like half the people more than half the people in the audience know that Chuck Bible like that <laughs> so that was rather mortifying because I was the the conductor and probably the coaches or somebody called me out on it later and I was like but that's what I did it made sense to me yeah. well I have heard that advice before really Yes. Uh, maybe. I've been told to do that Seriously. before. Or like if somebody, if you have the second iteration of yeah. a theme, 
if somebody screws up the first iteration, you're supposed to try to <laughs> make it like at least come close so it doesn't sound super obvious that the right. first person screwed up. Solidarity. <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. Those are two that I can remember. I am certain that there have been plenty more since then. <laughs> yeah, but, you'll have to go under hypnosis to get yeah. the rest of those. <laughs> So in addition to Baroque bassoon, classical bassoon, you also play the hecklephone. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yes. So this is something that, um, in a way, I kind of stumbled into about two and a half years ago. It was here in Eugene, and the Eugene Symphony, I knew early in the season that we were going to be playing Alpine Symphony by Strauss. And I knew that this was a tricky thing because there are just there are very few instruments, um, and there are very few people who are willing to play the thing if even if you can find an instrument. And so I put the symphony in touch with a couple people that I I know they may be listening who have experience playing hecklephone, and um, for one reason or another, it didn't work out to to bring either one of them here to Oregon to play. And at the same time, I found an instrument that was for sale nearby. And I kind of made the leap. And it was, it's not something anybody does lightly. But again, I have a lot of instruments. And it's always been a thing for me that, you know, hand him some instrument, he'll figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I bought what is a beautiful um, heckle phone from 1930. Wow. Yeah, it's a gorgeous horn and it's in great shape. It had been updated. Some of the keywork has been updated and um, it's in wonderful shape. So what was tricky was figuring out reeds. And so now I have a bunch of reeds and I kind of love playing this thing. I ended up playing Alpine Symphony and I've had a few other performances since then of other pieces, but I think it's a really cool instrument and it deserves not to die. <laughs> Do you ever play it on a recital? I haven't, but I'm hoping to. So I'm taking a sabbatical this year and I'll be playing full-time in Oregon Symphony as acting contrabassoon, utility bassoonist. But part of my sabbatical project is to spend some time on the heckle phone. So I have a bunch of repertoire in addition to the, the probably the most famous pieces, the Hindemith Trio, but I would like to play it more. I think I think it has an unbelievable sound. Um, it's fun to play. And people have been really, they, they have a really favorable response to it. If they don't know what it is, it's fun to to share, you know, this tiny little branch of the double reed tree. Literally a tree. <laughs> it, it is a, it's a tree. It's almost as tall as, as a bassoon. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. That's yeah. amazing. It must be really wonderful to see their eyes light up when they hear <laughs> the hecklephone sound. Yeah, and it's it's a you know it was made to be kind of a loud version of the bass oboe at the time. It's uh-huh. the, the bore is really wide, so it's uh-huh. it's not a very subtle sound. <laughs> <laughs> what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? I'm thinking particularly like you know that I I made a conscious decision that I wanted to play a lot. I wanted to be very very busy in solo chamber orchestral new music. Um, realms as well as teaching. So I think all of the things that we would want someone to do 
who's focused on a full-time playing career. All of those things apply in addition to kind of knowing yourself. I mean, that sounds maybe too obvious, but you, you, teaching is not for everyone. Working in academia is not for everyone. But if those qualities you see in yourself, you know, not just teaching, coaching, working with um, many kinds of students with many sets of experiences and a lot of different backgrounds. Yes, doing the committee things, doing all the, I call it administrivia, hashtag. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know that's, that's going to take off now. I love it. I know, it's perfect. Um, serving on committees, doing peer reviews, doing external reviews, being a part of an academic institution and helping it to grow, helping it to change over time. If those are qualities that someone could find in themselves as appealing, being in a school environment, I mean, I said it earlier, I'm a school nerd. And so it makes sense that I've, I've kept this as part of what I do. If you can see those qualities in yourself, then this is probably the right kind of thing to do. We all know it's not easy to get any job doing what we do, even mm-hmm. in such a narrow field. But I think take advantage of of every opportunity as a teacher, as a read maker, as a, a coach, certainly as a performer, all of these things contribute toward a set of experiences that could potentially get you hired. That's fantastic advice. Steve Vaki, thank you so much for talking to us on Double Read Dish. This has been such a wonderful conversation. We really cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much. This was super fun. And um, let me know when you're ready to dish again. All right, we will. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you loved that interview with Steve Vaki. And since we never have enough time to talk about all the things we needed to talk about in these interviews, he wanted to be sure that we mentioned that while he was at Yale, he studied with Frank Morelli. As always, you can follow us on all of our social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to tune into our next episode where we will have your DJ Alvarez, assistant professor of oboe at Baylor University. That'll be hip. Galit, time to end this nerd parade. <laughs> Go make grades. <laughs> Go get a dog. <laughs>